All right, if not, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll pick up here this evening again in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. Father, again, it's good to be in your house again this evening. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace as it's been extended to each and every one of us. We do pray, Father, that uh, the ones that have been mentioned and are on our hearts and in our minds, we lift them up to you tonight, and we do pray that you'd abide and be with them. Those that are awaiting tests or perhaps awaiting surgeries or, uh, or have just received the news that they have cancers or some other dreaded disease, we ask, that, Father, that you would intervene according to your will and in your grace and mercy toward each one of them. We do pray for our students as they're studying the word this evening. We pray for, likewise for our children and word of life. And guide us this evening as we continue to look at <clears throat> this marvelous statement of who you are in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. Okay, we are in Exodus chapter 3, and so turn with me there. I'm going to read again a phrase that I have read a number of times. And uh, We started last Sunday night to look at uh, <clears throat> uh, John's Pipe, John Piper's assessment of this particular phrase, and if you would um, look at verse 11, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Which is a legitimate question. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the, God, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So we have uh, we've looked at this passage <clears throat> a number of Sunday evenings. And just to pick up tonight, uh, as we start through these, these uh, ten items that uh, Piper has listed, the thing that we see here is that God eventually, he didn't start by naming himself, but he eventually does give uh, a name, and his name is I Am. And it's uh, this particular uh, understanding of uh, the word Lord in our English version is uh, found 4,000 times in the Old Testament alone. So once he mentions it, it's carried through uh, quite often, repetitively, in the Old Testament. So I asked the question last Sunday night, are we awed by the sheer fact that God is, that he, wa that he never was or never shall be, he is. He dwells in the eternal present. And that's difficult for us to to uh, grasp. Uh, he is who he is. Now we can say that about ourselves too, but not in the same sense that we see here that Moses is writing. So again, a people who are awed by the 
the amnesty of God. I've got it listed on, on that third bullet there. They can be an irrepressible people. When we understand that the God that we serve is eternal, no beginning, no end, then we also will be overwhelmed by who he is in his amnesty. Now, some of these words, of course, are not, uh, you won't find them in the dictionary. But what you see here is that God is revealing himself to Moses because of all the people in the Old Testament, Moses is going to be given the greatest responsibility. Yeah, you've got kings, you've got David, you've got Solomon, you have prophets, but the greatest responsibility falls on the shoulders of Moses, and that's to lead a captive people out of a land where they had been oppressed for 400 years into what is referred to as the promised land. And so God is teaching Moses. This is uh, that singular one-on-one -on -one moment. And this carries through. We'll see it even more as we get to the end of the book of Exodus. Uh, that God speaks directly to Moses. He speaks to him face to face. In fact, God will eventually say, I have not spoken to anyone on earth like I have spoken to Moses. So... Piper takes from this, and I think we went through two or three of these last Sunday night before we closed. I hope we can go through all ten of them this evening. But uh, when he, God is speaking and conveying to Moses his absolute being. So his absolute being means he never had a beginning. We, we know that, but still it's difficult for us to imagine. Uh, every child at some point in time will ask you, grand, grandchild, whatever, who made God? And of course, every wise parent will say, nobody made God. God simply is and always was. There's no beginning. And the second thing is that God being absolute means that he never ends. There's no beginning and there's no end. Now, in the book of Revelation, Josh was sharing with us this evening that he started to teach the book of Revelation in, in the college and career class. In the book of Revelation, one of the great phrases and titles of Jesus Christ is found there, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But that is a title that is given for the, to indicate that the earth had a beginning and the earth will have an end. Well, with God, there is no beginning and there is no end. He's not the Alpha and the Omega in the fact that he was the first beginning and will be the last end. He is the one that brings all of that together. And being absolute, God will never end. He didn't come into being, so he's not going to go out of being. You and I came into being, and we will pass from this life into the life that is to come. We will pass into the next state for you and I, but God never does. God doesn't change the state with the exception of the incarnation. He is and he is what is. Okay, there's no place that we can go to hide from him. Uh, he is before all things and in him, the book of Colossians says, all things exist. Next slide if you would. So if God is absolute if there's no beginning and no end, he's also absolute reality. 
the reality of where we are tonight, of the tangible things that we come in contact with, is because that God is real. Now, Jesus said, John chapter 4, that God is spirit. So, the only way that anyone can see God is when his manifestation of Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll see that again toward the end of Exodus chapter, uh, toward the end of the book of Exodus. There is no reality, there was no reality before God created. Or there was no reality that was different from God since God is. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it and he makes it. And he did. He is outside of his creation. He's not one of the many realities that he creates. He doesn't make himself better and he certainly can't get any worse. He is simply there as an absolute reality. Now all of this is bound up in that little phrase, I am who I am. He is all that is eternally. There's no space, no universe, no emptiness, only God. Absolutely there, absolutely all. <clears throat> On Jupiter, there's what's called the giant red spot. And astronomers tell us that that giant red spot changes because it's a storm that has passed over Jupiter, Jupiter for literally hundreds of years. So we just had Hurricane Ian that came in did tremendous amount of devastation there in Florida and other places as well. We see some of the effects of it in our own yards and, and uh, those uh, uh, incidences of, of situations that have caused power to go out and, and whatnot. But God the reality of that storm, which doesn't impact us, but in some way it impacts the solar system. God's aware of it. God permitted it. From what we know about the book of Colossians, God created it in some fashion. And we don't think about that. We think we think only on, in, in a finite way. We look at things finitely, not infinitely. God does. The fourth thing, God's absolute being means that God is utterly independent. Now, we like to be independent. We like to be, there's another word, uh, uh, autonomous. And we like to think we're independent. Our kids like to think they're independent. We live in a very... An, uh, a country that is founded on our independence. But the only absolutely independent being in all of the universe or outside of the universe, that's the thing, God doesn't dwell in the universe, is God. He depends on nothing. That's called the aseity of God. He has no need. The simplicity of God. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or to support him or to counsel him. He told Job, are you going to counsel me? No one counsels God or no one makes God who he is. 
we ascribe to God from what we learn of the scripture who he is, but we don't make him who he is. He's utterly independent. He has no need, and he will never have any need. Fifthly, God's absolute being means rather that everything that is not God, which would be you and I, depends totally on God. And this covers all the 8 billion or so people that are on the earth, many of whom do not even know nor care about God. All that is not God, that's you and I, animal life, plant life, molecular life, whatever it may be, all that is not God is secondary and dependent. We're not primary. We think we are, but we're not. We're secondary to God, and we're dependent upon him. The entire universe is utterly secondary. It's not primary. The purpose of the universe, and, you know, astronomers will tell you, uh, give you some reasons and why life exists here and um, the rarity of life and the fact that as, as far as we know today, and, and I uh, affirm, I think that... Uh, other than the earth, there is no um, life in the universe. Well, why is that? Because God determined that on a very, very small planet, he would accomplish his will and his way and his purpose in his people. Because God doesn't have a need, he doesn't need to populate the universe with billions and trillions of earths. So everything in the universe is utterly secondary. It's not primary. It came into being by God, and it stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it into being. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. No, it's Colossians. I'm sorry. Colossians chapter 1. Not 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> this is a great passage on the preeminence of Christ. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not in the sense that he was born, in the sense that he is the preeminent one. For by him all things were created that are, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. When we studied angels a few weeks ago in First Peter, I reminded you that this is just these are just other names for angelic beings. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So Calvary accomplished a great deal in the terms of bringing peace or eventual peace into the universe. And we don't think about that. We always think about Calvary in the terms of ourselves. And we should, because we're born again by what uh, uh, Christ did for us at Calvary. But it also brings together a creation that is in uh, rebellion against God. And we'll see that, um, obviously, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> God's absolute being means all the universe, when compared to God, is nothing. Now, yes, it's immense. It's marvelous. It speaks to us of the handiwork of God, how, how uh, absolutely... Uh, omnipotent he is. We see that. But without him, if, if God were to be killed, that's why it's important to, be, to understand that when Jesus died, it wasn't just God that died. It was a God-man. God cannot die. It was the God-man that died. It's important to understand that because if God died, everything would go out of existence. Everything is contingent, it's dependent, it's absolute, and from this we know there's an independent reality as a shadow to a substance, an echo to a thunderclap, as a bubble to the ocean. In other words, when you start to compare the, the minutia in life to the immensity of life, all of it, when compared to God, is nothing. Isaiah 40 says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And God is right in what he determines to do. That is God's favor, God's mercy, his grace that permits us the opportunity to enjoy life forever, how brief a time we may have. But he certainly when we are compared to him, we are as nothing. The great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There are attempts and have been attempts to change that word wretch because we don't want to think that we're, that we're wretches. But God and God alone sustains us and sustains the universe. This is what he's teaching Moses. Seven, God's absolute being means that God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember this morning when we threw the slide up, there are many that now say that God changes with the circumstance. No, he doesn't. He would not be God. We do, but God doesn't. He is the same in his consistency. He can't be improved how many times do you watch commercials or you read an advertisement and you see the phrase new and improved? Well, there's no new and improved God. Never will be. He doesn't get better. 
He's not becoming anything. He is who he is. If God lifted weights, he wouldn't add any more to his muscles, but he doesn't, obviously, doesn't need to. He is who he is. There is no development in God. He's not taking any courses. He's not learning from us. There's no progress with God. He's absolute perfection, and because of that, he cannot be improved. And again, we can't grasp that. It would take Moses a lifetime to see all of this play out as he moves the Hebrew children from Egypt to the promised land. Number eight, God's absolute being. Go back one, brother. Thank you. God's absolute being means that he is the absolute standard of truth. That he is the absolute standard of goodness. And he is the absolute standard of beauty. What a, what a beautiful world we live in. And it's a fallen world at that. And it's remarkably beautiful. It takes our breath away to see the beauty of God's nature. And yet Jesus said when he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look at the lilies of the field. Solomon in all of his glory are not arrayed as one of these. That's the I am, the God that we worship. There's no law book to which he looks to know. He doesn't thumb through something to figure out, well, I need this reference in order to make this decision. He's not looking for an almanac to establish facts. He has no craft. It's unnecessary to have craft, and yet he has crafted this remarkable physical world. And from what we understand, Jesus has gone to craft an even more remarkable world. And he's not asking us for help. This is the God that we serve. Next slide. <clears throat> God's absolute being means that God does whatever he pleases. And when he does whatever he pleases, it's always right. Always right. Well, certainly God made a mistake when, when this happened. Well, not only is it always right, but it's always beautiful. And it's always in accord with what the Word says. I had a man many, many years ago that told me that, you know, we were talking about, I think, end-time things, and, and he said, well, I don't remember the question now, but he asked a question, and then I, I'm sure I had a poor answer. But he said, well, maybe God hasn't told us everything. And I said, well, absolutely he hasn't told us everything. Do we think that the Bible contains everything that God knows? No, obviously not. But what he has told us is in accord with the truth, and whatever God knows is truth. There's no, there are no constraints on him outside. There's nothing that hinders him in doing what he pleases. He doesn't have to ask permission of the angels or the archangels or the church of the living God because he does rightly what he pleases. All, that, all reality that is outside of him, we refer to that as transcendence, 
he created and designed and governs as the fact that he is absolute reality. He's utterly free from any constraints. And he doesn't, uh, nothing originates from the council uh, or he's utterly free from any constraints that don't originate from the council of his own will, which means they don't, nothing exists outside of that. And again, I can't understand. I've, I know I've preached a number of sermons about the wills of God, the will of God and how that plays out. I don't understand it. I preach what the Word says, but I don't understand it. And number 10, God's absolute being means that he is the most important and most valuable reality and the most important and the most valuable person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than everything else. And yet we do such a poor, poor job of worship. We refer to this as eminence, his ability to be close to us, his ability to be within us. Again, we don't know that. Last slide. <clears throat> Therefore, we should not blaspheme God by taking him for granted and assuming, making him peripheral on the outside, or calling him the assumed foundation of all things while it's the things that we really get excited about. And we do, I do. It's the things we really get excited about. Now, the, this is a quote from Einstein, and Einstein passed away, I think, in 1955. He was not a believer. Einstein was Jewish, but he knew a great deal of, uh, about natural theology. Because it never saved him, as far as we know. We trusted he was, but we... As far as we know, he was not a born-again believer. But he said this. <clears throat> he said, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as basically a very religious man. This was Charles Misner who wrote a biography about uh, Einstein. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined and they were just, uh, what's that, that footnote there, not, not, um, not talking. We're not talking about the real thing, okay. And so, and we're guilty, I'm guilty of that. We do our best to put messages together and to teach them, but I'm guilty of that. To bring you into the presence of God so that when we leave here, at least on the Lord's Day, we know that we have been in the presence of the one who is the I Am and the one that told Moses that you can take this with you, I 
and the same yesterday, today, and forever. Any comments or questions on what we've covered this evening? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you are the second person in the Trinity. You're God the Son. You're the lover of our souls, as we learned this morning. He, you came to seek and save the lost, and we, we praise you for that. We will spend an eternity praising you for coming to save us. And so our prayer this evening as we leave this place that we would be reminded that this great revelation that was made to Moses thousands of years ago is now made real to us. We'll see it play out in Moses' life. We see how he will be emboldened, how he will be given courage to lead a, a recalcitrant people from Egypt to Canaan. But he had seen you on Mount Horeb and he begins father to understand what you would have him do may we likewise learn that as we depart this place this evening in Jesus name we pray